Hi, this is Natalie Hoffman of FlyingFreeNow.com, and you're listening to the Flying Free Podcast, a support resource for women of faith looking for hope and healing from hidden emotional and spiritual abuse. Okay, welcome to episode 76 of the Flying Free Podcast. Today I have with me again, he's a repeat guest. And I'm super excited that he agreed to come back, Bob Hamp. And Bob, welcome, Bob. Thanks. (laughs) Bob is the, Bob and I have been getting to know each other. Bob and Polly, his wife, they work together. um, He is an author of numerous books. He's a speaker. He's a teacher. And he's the founder, and this is a mouthful, so listen carefully, of the Think Differently Counseling, Consulting, and Connecting Center. So you must do all three of those things at that center. We do that and several other things. <laughs> but you had to limit the, they had to limit right. the title. It just was getting too long. Okay, that's awesome. And I love all the C's. I, I, I'm always impressed when people can do that. I'm not very good at that. Okay, so today he's got a really amazing thing that he's going to teach us, and I'm super excited for him to get into it. Go, Bob. Oh, just turn on the turn on the jets, huh? Exactly. Go. We're ready. Well, like I said to you before we got started, Natalie, if I had a single thing to say to any group of people, um, and specifically to believers, but really to any group of people, because I think so many people radically misunderstand Christianity, including Christians, um, it would be this topic that we're going to talk about today. And so it'd be super helpful to me if from time to time you'd stop me, and I'm assuming you're going to do that, ask questions, uh, because I tend to roll through this, and then I get a lot of um, wide eyes and confused looks. And so uh, let me start by posing uh, this question. What if the problem that Jesus came to solve made it very likely that humans would misunderstand the problem that Jesus came to solve? That doesn't sound like a good situation. Right. In other words, very specifically, Jesus came to earth to solve a problem. This, this problem uh, began in Genesis chapter 3, and the theory would be that we, the church, we, the people who are followers of Jesus and um, people who are, are the church that he said, you know, on this rock I'll build my church, we, the church, ought also to be solving the same problem that he came to solve. And I would say that the dilemma for us all is that literally the problem he came to solve has something very much to do with the way that we think. And so we approach the problem thinking about it wrongly. As a therapist, we don't actually help people with their problems. We help people who have tried and tried and tried to solve their problems and their solutions actually make the problem worse. I've often used the example of, uh, um, when I tried to change my aunt's tire, but the, the lug wrench was the wrong size. And I, as a teenage boy, I stripped all the lug nuts because I was trying so hard, but using the wrong tool. And so what happens is when people try to solve a problem but have the wrong tool, they actually create a greater problem. So the idea would be that if Jesus came to solve a problem and we join him in trying to solve that problem but use the wrong tool, we can actually do harm to people instead of really partner with Jesus in in solving the problem he came to earth to solve. So not only do we use the wrong tool, but the reason for that, um, 
I actually do need these except on podcasts. I'm putting my glasses on just to, as an illustration. What I tell people all the time is the dilemma is in the garden, we didn't just lose a connection to God. We lost a way of knowing and a way of seeing. So if I lose my glasses, I have two problems. Number one, my glasses are lost. Number two, I've lost the way that I find lost things. And I think it's crucial for us to recognize that the shift that took place in Genesis 3, or rather the problem Jesus came to solve, the thing that happened to Adam and Eve, and therefore the whole human race in their stead, the thing that happened there didn't just affect their standing, it affected their thought process and their perceptual mechanisms. Yep. That being the case, we often read Genesis 3 with a Genesis 4 mind, and we define the problem wrongly. See, most people think the problem Jesus came to solve was sin. And the irony of that is that in Genesis chapter 3, you can't find the word sin in there anywhere. Um, you can't find it in English or Hebrew or in any way. What you do find is a story. And that story tells something that I would describe as a shift of source. Now, uh, I think you and several others have referred to this as my analogy about trees. It's interesting because it's part analogy and part literal. And so what I want to describe for a second, even before we get into the story, if we look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, there's an interesting description of the scene in which the story takes place. And that description says that God put all kinds of trees into the garden, trees that were beautiful, trees that were good to eat, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the tree of life were both there. And then it just goes on to prepare us for the story of Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve changed their sources, or what we refer to as the fall of man. And in that chapter, we discover the problem that Jesus came to solve. But in Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, what we see is there's a description of reality that's very different than the reality that you and I experience today. That reality describes both trees, which are something you and I are very familiar with, but it also describes fruit on those trees, which is something you and I have never seen with our eyes. It describes knowledge, so the knowledge of good and evil, but there's physical trees that grow spiritual fruit, and it describes life, same thing, a physical tree that grows spiritual fruit. So part of what we can capture from that, two, things, two important things we can capture from that, Adam and Eve had a way of seeing that you and I do not have. And that way of seeing allowed them to perceive the second important point. The second important point is that the, the Garden of Eden showed that reality is both the material and a spiritual entity integrated together. So in the Garden, what you see is the integration of physical trees with spiritual fruit physical beings with spiritual nature and, and related to and in relationship, in ongoing relationship with a spiritual being who created this physical reality as an integrated reality. Now, the real point is Adam and Eve could perceive that because of the way that they thought prior to, the, prior to Genesis 3. Their eyes weren't closed because they saw both physical and spiritual reality, trees, with knowledge and trees with life. And so when God assigns them to don't eat from the fruit of that one tree, because when you do, you'll surely die. They not only know which tree it is, but they're familiar visually with what that fruit looks like. You and I have never seen life with our eyes. 
and we've never seen knowledge with our eyes. What we see is the evidence of those two things, but we never actually see them the way that Adam and Eve saw them. And the point of that would be to say that after Genesis 3, Adam and Eve could not see what they previously did see, or more importantly, their way of seeing and their way of knowing was changed. They, they didn't just lose their glasses, they lost their way of finding what they had lost. So the two trees, very important to recognize the two trees, you've got the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam and Eve really lived day to day in a, in a circular relationship with this thing called the tree of life, the breath of life, or the spirit of life, God himself and his spirit, where God initially breathed life into them. And they, in relationship with him, had this circular relationship of we, we receive God's breath, we contain God's breath, and we broadcast God's breath. And so not only their way of being, but now their way of knowing and their way of perceiving actually came from the Spirit of God inside of them. Mm-hmm. Paul refers to this when he talks to the Corinthians and says, um, we no longer know any man by the flesh, now we know him by the Spirit. And what he's saying is exactly what I'm describing about Adam and Eve's way of knowing back in the garden prior to Genesis 3. Their way of knowing prior to Genesis 3 was the spirit inside of them gave them the most important data about reality around them. Now, their senses did too, their eyes, their ears, you know, all their senses gave them data. But the spirit of God inside of them translated that for them. After Genesis 3, that wasn't the case. So here's what happens. God says, if you eat the fruit of that tree, you'll surely die. And here's what a Genesis 4 mind interprets that. If you eat from that tree, you're doing wrong. The wrong that you do deserves punishment. The punishment you do deserves death. Jesus will someday come to take that death, pay the price for it, so that you can have a chance to try again. Whether it's stated that way or not, it becomes this legal exchange between bad behavior Jesus paying the price and opening the opportunity for us to you know, change and, and do good behavior so that we don't deserve death anymore. Right. The crazy thing about it is, and I've said this for years in, in a couple other settings, most people, if you look at their behavior, they might deserve some punishment, but most of them don't deserve death. That makes sense? Yeah. If you take, Natalie, I'm, I'm assuming you've probably never murdered anybody before. I've, no, I've never murdered anybody? Correct. That we said, no, no, I have not murdered anyone. <laughs> okay. So really, if we took the totality of your quote-unquote bad behavior, or what some people call sin, and I'll address that in a couple minutes, if we took the totality of your bad behavior, you don't actually deserve death. In, in the legal exchange sense, you have not committed enough sinful acts in order to deserve death. And, and so even in that sense, this legal transaction idea of the garden misbehavior, um, the state of man, and Jesus paying the penalty by dying on the cross doesn't quite make sense. It doesn't quite add up. The reality is the exchange that took place in Genesis 3 is the exact opposite of the exchange that Jesus offers on the cross, and that is we gave up life for death. Jesus comes back and offers our death for his life. Does that make sense? It does. So I have a question because here's what I'm thinking. When I was growing up, I was told that, well, and even in the church that I was in as an adult, that we may not do. Okay. I had relatives that were Catholic 
But my family of origin taught me that, you know, Catholics were all going to go to hell. Okay. <laughs> so, so I just couldn't, it was really hard for me to understand how, and these were good people, like the best people. Okay. And I couldn't understand why God would send them to hell. But, but the argument was, well, if you don't have this transaction where you accept Jesus into your heart, then you go to hell. And so it doesn't matter how good you are. Everyone is evil. Like everyone is depraved, born into depravity and evil. And the only way out is to say this prayer. And if you don't say that prayer, then you go to hell. So how do you, how would you talk, how would you talk about that then with someone who thinks that, well, we're all, it doesn't matter if you murder someone or if you tell a white lie, you deserve death because of your depravity. Yeah. I, I think I'll answer that. Ask me again in about seven minutes. Oh, okay. I jumped in too soon. No, all no, right. no. That's the question. That's actually, I think, the reason people really struggle with this particular teaching is because that's so prevalent. Yeah. And it's not 100% wrong. I really struggle with the language of it. You know, depravity. You know, uh, here, here's what I would say. So Adam and Eve... Um, both natural and spiritual beings living in a garden where God says to them, you're in constant relationship with my breath, where my breath comes to you, lives in you and moves through you. And in such Adam and Eve are the hinge between the, the heavenly realm and the, the material realm or the spiritual realm and the material realm. Adam and Eve as both physical beings and spiritual beings are the conduit by which God enters the physical realm. But even at that point, he still comes and walks with them in the garden, right? And, and so what makes them who they are is that joint nature of material and spiritual. They're physical bodies with spiritual natures. And, um, and that, that comes from the way that they stay connected to God. That's, that staying connected to God is simply that surrender to the receive, contain, broadcast thing I talked about a couple minutes ago. So God looks at him and says, if you eat from the fruit of that tree, you'll surely die. Now, what, what tree is that? That's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so Genesis 4 and after mind actually thinks with a knowledge of good and evil paradigm. And a knowledge of good and evil paradigm says this, what good things should I do to, to be in connection with God? And what bad things should I avoid to stay in connection with God? See where this is headed? Yeah. So that paradigm, the tree, or the way I refer to it is source. The tree of life was Adam and Eve's source from creation through this moment in Genesis 2. And in Genesis 3, they changed. They didn't just misbehave. They didn't just violate a rule. They changed sources. Yeah. Where previously, the way they perceived and the way they knew reality was their connection to God. Now they, they slash we know reality and perceive reality through a lens called the knowledge of good and evil. We evaluate everything in terms of what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad, what's good and what's evil. And the crazy thing about that, Natalie, is it sounds so right. right? Yeah, well, it starts to feel a little bit scary then because then you're like, well, is there, is there... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Oh, universal truth. Is there, 
So now I'm, is there, is there, is there, does God define our morality or how do we, you know, I can see, I can just hear what some people are thinking right now because my brain is going there too. Um, How how do I know what is right or wrong? If I don't, you know, if I want to know what God says is right and wrong. So that. So the dilemma is that question is part of the paradigm. And I get where you're headed, but stay with me a second. Okay. The two options are this, man connected to God where God moves through him, or man connected to his knowledge where he evaluates what's right and wrong and lives based on that. Yeah. Yeah. That make more sense? It does. Yep. The man connected to God where God operates through him isn't even going to go, today I think I'll rob a bank, or you know, today I think I'm going to abuse my spouse. God connected to man is going to constantly be thinking, um, what is God doing on the earth today and what's my part in it? Yes. Evaluating between knowledge of good and evil sets up uh, dynamics like this. Jesus goes into the synagogue, heals a woman who's been crippled for more than a decade, and the religious people in the room look at him and say, he did that on the Sabbath. That's wrong, and it must be a way to disconnect from God. And so people who are disconnected from God and evaluating things based on the knowledge of good and evil criticize things that flow from the breath of life. That's amazing. I mean, you're basically describing why legalism is so dangerous and and legalism is so disconnected from the Holy Spirit and from God. Think about this for a second. Why did God give a pillar of cloud in the daytime and a pillar of fire at night instead of just giving the Israelites a map? Yeah, he wanted them to stay with him, stay with me, live in me. Yes. Because his guidance comes from his presence and our connection to him, not from our interpretation of information. Yeah. The dilemma with the knowledge of good and evil is it puts our interpretation in charge of what's right and what's wrong. And And abuse abuse victims can really relate to how that can be really abusive absolutely so if the if people in power are in charge of interpretation yes then people in power can say divorce is against the bible um women should submit to their husbands and what that means is they should be subject to their husbands you know on and on and on the interpretation of the map becomes uh, uh becomes the the result of whoever is in power's interpretation or the interpretation of the people in power and so the reason God gives the, the pillar of fire instead of a map is because it's his presence and our connection to him, not the data and our interpretation of it. Right. Well, the Bible can be seen the same way. Not that he didn't give us the Bible, but we either use that as a pillar of fire and smoke, i.e. it's his presence with us and our connection to him, or it's our interpretation of that. It's crucial that we let the Spirit interpret interpret the Bible, not the Bible interpret the Spirit. Because if we're not careful, we end up um, with, notice the number of people that approach Jesus and ask questions that are are designed to trap him. Yeah. Even the woman at the well who wasn't trying to trap him says, my people say we worship here, your people say we worship there. Which one is right? Yeah. And often they, they present to him their knowledge of good, their knowledge of evil, and ask Jesus to make a judgment over which one is right. 
And Jesus never answers a yes or no question. And he doesn't answer a yes or no question because the knowledge of good and evil sets up right and wrong questions instead of where is God moving and what's his breath doing through me right now? Yeah, I love that. This takes a lot more wisdom. And the other way really doesn't take any wisdom. It's just very rigid and very, really, this takes wisdom and love. Yes. And the other way takes nothing. It, it, it actually just takes, um, so in my mind, this idea that what happened when, uh, when the prophet comes to, to the people and they say, go tell God we want a king. The prophet goes back to God and says, the people say they want a king. And God says, hey, um, that's, they're not opposing you. They're opposing me. Let's talk about having a king. Well, this need for a king or this desire to have a king is still present today. Everybody wants someone else to tell them what's right and what's wrong. Mm. I remember asking God himself the question, should I leave my marriage? He, he never answered me that. He told me what was possible. He told me what, what I could do. He told me outcomes of every choice, but he never enforced on me a knowledge of good and evil answer. Wow, I love that because that the, I that's my experience too. And when women women ask that all the time, what does God want me to do? Just tell me what does God want me to do. I'll do it. I'll walk right. the path. Just tell me what it is. And God doesn't work that way. And so, part of what I always tell people is that God is much more interested in the conversation than the outcome. Mm, we want the answer. He wants to stay connected to us. We, we want the destination. He wants to walk with us along the pathway. Yeah. So these two trees aren't, aren't just metaphorical. There really is a legitimate concept that we have a source of knowing and seeing and taking in reality that can come from the breath of God to us, in us, and through us. And like you said, that requires awareness. It requires mindfulness. It requires um, conscious attachment to God as a way of living. The knowledge of good and evil requires very little. And, and what that does is it makes us all kind of want somebody who has the best knowledge of good. We want to follow the leader who's got it the most right. And so then when the leader who has it, in our opinion, the most right says something that's hurtful to us or contrary to God, we go, yeah, but they're the leader who has it right. And so if I'm going to take the whole the pill, I'm going to take the whole pill. The blue pill, the blue, uh, the, yeah, the blue pill in this case is called the knowledge of good and evil. And it's what went wrong in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve turned away from this thing called the knowledge or called life that was constantly their source and their way of being. And now their way of being, their way of thinking, their way of, way of knowing came from evaluating what's right and wrong and making a decision. And most people, let me say, I'm, I don't mean to be critical with this, but many people choose what's right and wrong based on what either a specific leader says or what the crowd's doing instead of taking a moment to stop and connect to God for themselves. And I think it's one of the reasons why the Bible would say we're so much like sheep is because we'd rather just follow than stand up and, and connect to the, to the boss, to the, the father. You know what I'm saying? Yep. So in, in uh, John chapter 10, Jesus stands up and says, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. 
but I came that you might behave really, really well until I get back. <laughs> or, or does he say, the thief came to steal, to kill, and destroy, but I came that you might have life and life abundantly. See, the knowledge of good and evil mind, even though it knows that verse, operates as, this, as though the first thing I said is true. We've got to really hold it together until he gets back. And here's the crazy thing, Natalie. You'll know this already. A lot of people will hear, will hear this and say, so then you're saying that behavior doesn't matter? To which I would say, of course I'm not saying that behavior doesn't matter. We shouldn't kill people. We shouldn't steal. We shouldn't covet our neighbor's goods, right? But what I am saying is that source matters. The Pharisees did all the rules from the source of self-management, or rather, I, I call them the keepers of the knowledge of good and evil. They, they followed, they did all the right behaviors, but they did it out of their knowledge of good and evil. And the dilemma with the knowledge of good and evil is the end is always death. Why? Because it takes you away from life and puts you into what I call self-sourcing or self-management. So this question of depravity that you asked about a couple of minutes ago, uh, let, me, let me talk about sin from the perspective that this, this teaching then in, implies. Even though the word sin isn't in that chapter, the concept is throughout the chapter and throughout all the chapters that follow. But the concept of sin changes when we stop evaluating it from the knowledge of good and evil and start looking at it from the perspective of the tree of life. The concept of sin is this. We are empty of the breath of God. And if a person who's empty of the breath of God steals a piece of gum or murders, they're still empty of the breath of God, and therefore death is in them. But it's the fact that death is in us that leaves us eternally dead, not because we stole the gum or committed a bunch of murders. And so here's the dilemma. That's the branch called the knowledge of evil. And often what we think good discipleship is, is getting people out of the branch called the knowledge of evil into the branch called the knowledge of good. But the problem is both branches come from the same root, and that root is an empty soul. Or rather, living with knowledge as source. And so what that means is not only can I, from the emptiness, what people refer to as depravity, let's call it just vacancy, if you want. For, for the unregenerate human the breath of God isn't in them. And some of them steal gum, some of them murder a bunch of people, but some of them go into ministry. Yeah. Because the branch called the knowledge of good is just another way to try to fill that emptiness based on knowledge. Yeah. So I climb up this branch called the knowledge of good and I become proficient at all the right things I think God wants me to do but I'm still empty on the inside. I'm still vacant of the breath of God. So the way I think about sin, so the Hebrew word for sin literally means missing the mark. You've heard that before. And everyone talks about the archer and the arrow and there's a target and we all don't hit the bullseye. What if missing the mark isn't about not hitting a target, but missing the mark? We're missing the, the presence. We're missing the thing that marks us as children of God. And we're, when we're missing that, we can do bad things, but we can also do good things out of that emptiness. Yeah. And so this, you can see two, 
two very important things. Number one, why it is that so many people feel so, um, so much that Christianity doesn't work for them because they're trying to climb a branch called the knowledge of good instead of turn from this branch, this whole tree over to the tree of life. And the second thing you see is why so many leaders are so broken and evil is because that's it's a horrible generalization. But when you become proficient at the knowledge of good, but you're empty the breath of God, you become a dictator for your brand of the knowledge of good. And only those who follow your version of the knowledge of good are doing it right. Hence the reason that one group says the other group isn't going to make it to heaven. And that group says the other group isn't going to make it to heaven. I think we're all going to be shocked when we walk into that place and go, oh, a lot of the people I thought might be here aren't. And a lot of people I didn't think would be here are. So I think when Jesus says there's a narrow way and a broad way, I don't think he's talking about not many people will be able to manage their behavior in such a way that they can pass through the narrow way. To me, the narrow way is there's a change in our way of thinking. And in fact, the word repent actually doesn't mean change your behavior or turn around. Literally, the word repent comes from the Greek word metanoio which means change the way that you think. It's not change what you think, it's change the way you think. And it's essentially a reference to the way you think called knowledge, the knowledge of good and evil will never apprise you of the thing that Jesus is teaching. He'll say, you've heard it said, don't steal, you know, but I say to you, don't covet, you know. He'll say, you, you've heard it said, don't... Uh, uh, don't uh, commit adultery, but I say to you, don't even lust after a woman in your heart. And some people hear that, the knowledge of good and evil people hear that, as Jesus saying, the rules are even harder than you thought. Yeah. But really what he's saying is, you won't be able to do this out of your knowledge. You've got to come back again to the place where motive or the source matters. And when the source is the breath of God to me, the breath of God in me, and the breath of God through me, now I don't just not behave badly. I don't have the thoughts and motives inside that Jesus is referring to. Yep. So this issue of depravity and, and everyone's evil, I agree in the sense that I believe everyone comes into the world empty. But I don't necessarily think it's all evil. I think it's empty. Is this content resonating with you? I've written a book for women of faith in destructive relationships called Is It Me? Making Sense of Your Confusing Marriage, A Christian Woman's Guide to Hidden Emotional and Spiritual Abuse. You can read reviews and find out more about my book on Amazon.com. It comes in paperback, Kindle, and Audible formats. And new for 2020, I've created a companion workbook for Is It Me? also available on Amazon. This workbook is like 11 power-packed therapy sessions to help you process through the important material you'll be learning from my book. These books are recommended by counselors and therapists all over the United States. I've also got a website specifically focused on helping women of faith find hope and healing. It's called flyingfreenow.com. I'll even give you the first chapter of my book and the first chapter of my companion workbook for free when you hop on my mailing list at the top of my website. Those two resources are going to help you figure out if your relationship is normal or destructive. And now, let's get back to our episode. Maybe there's someone who 
was raised in a Christian home and because of all the things that have happened to them and maybe a lot of hypocrisy and a lot of whatever, they've just, they're trying to figure it out. Like, do I even believe what I, do I, what if they're feeling empty, what would you, how would you help them to connect with God again? Yeah, that's, I love that question. This is why I wanted you to like interject Um, because First, it's important to recognize the futility of what we've been given. Like I said, when we first started, the counselors don't always have to help people with problems. We often help them with solutions that make things worse. And so we've been told things like this. To connect to God, you should have a quiet time every morning. You should pray and read the Bible. And I'm not opposed to any of that activity. But what I'm opposed to is that activity coming out of knowledge instead of out of connection. Mm. And so the first thing I would say is it's important to recognize that we're not throwing out the whole of what you learn. God is still the source of all life. Jesus is still the way that we get to him. But our methods matter less than we think. His nearness is the most important aspect of that. And when we stop and get still, I I like to make a distinction between, you know, um, we choose to follow Jesus versus we surrender to his presence. We surrender to his lordship. Because following is something that takes our initiative. Surrendering is something, even though it's something we initiate, it surrenders to his initiative. And so when it comes to connecting to him, one of the first things I tell people is take some time off of the methods that you think would have worked in the past. You can imagine, Natalie, that makes some religious people nervous, right? Yes. Again, I'm not not devaluing prayer and I'm not devaluing time in the scriptures. I'm not devaluing meditation. What I'm saying is that those things done as an exercise out of knowledge of good will always eventually lead to dryness. And so when you take time off of those, what happens is we can just be still and practice surrender. And in being still and practicing surrender, what I recommend to people is ask him questions and then be still and wait for the answers. You know, ask him, hey, are you here? How do you see me? What are you doing right now in my life? But the key is the waiting for the answers, not just this, you know, stillness can become a rule too. And asking questions can become a rule. But it's the the shift of source that Jesus called repentance or changing the way that we think. So part of it means letting go of an old way of thinking. If I do enough Bible reading, I'll finally become holy. Well, it didn't really work that way for the Pharisees. And it probably won't work for us if reading is our source of of identity, even reading the Bible. But if reading the Bible points us to and connects us to the living and active breath and person of God, then what that means is we are turning now to this tree called the tree of life. And the tree of life is is a constant conversation where he reaches out to us, And if he's not saying something to us, he's at least moving towards us and in us. Mm -hmm. And if we can tune our awareness to that movement and to his, his voice toward us and toward his speaking, he may well use scripture 
But sometimes if we're so familiar with like a King James mindset, or any translation for that matter, if we know a verse so well, we can actually just begin repeating it because we want God to speak to us instead of waiting in the discomfort of our own frailty. Yeah. You know, can I jump in here and just share something? I did that. I had to get away. I was one of those people who prayed every morning, paced the floor, read my Bible every day, very rigid since the time I was a little girl. And I had to get away from that because, I mean, I'm actually starting to get back into it again, but it's a different from a different motive. But I had to take a break from that simply to find out, will God still love me and connect with me even if I don't have those things? I wanted to find out. And what I came to is God gave me this um, kind of this this anal- this word picture, this uh, maybe a visualization or whatever of a dad in a beautiful forest with lots of things to explore, and he's with his little girl, and he's not telling her, "Don't go over there, don't go over there." Whoops! Watch out, you're gonna fall. Oh no! Don't avoid that. He's not doing that. He's actually laughing and always staying close to her and letting her in freedom explore, fall down, skin her knee, come back to him and have him hold her, go out, but be free to learn and grow and explore his beautiful world, knowing that she is always being watched. She is always safe in him. Sometimes things will hurt, but he's always there. I had to picture myself as being that little girl and that God loved me no matter what, and that I was connected with him no matter what. And that is what transformed my relationship with God. That is so beautiful because that's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. In other words, you found yourself, there's two things about it. Number one, you found yourself in an active relationship with him where, and you, and what he wasn't doing was forbidding you a bunch of things. Right. What I was doing was walking with you. And, and the other thing he was doing was he was giving you a great deal of freedom to find out on your own. Yeah. It's amazing to me how we'll proclaim all these limitations that people must adhere to in order to be safe and follow God when God himself said to Adam and Eve, hey, don't eat it from the fruit of that tree. And then he left. He didn't hover. He didn't put signs around the tree. He didn't put a fence around the tree. He just said, if you eat from that, uh, in fact, he didn't actually say, don't eat from it. He said, if you eat from it, you'll die. Yeah. He basically told them what's, uh, I tell people that far more often than God makes rules, he simply describes reality and gives us an opportunity to interact with it. It's the knowledge of good and evil mind that turns that into rules. Right. right. Now, he didn't it, abandon them. He didn't no. let them go when that happened. He was still their father. He still loved them. Here's the other thing. The other connection that's amazing about this is that when you live from that rigid rule-based mindset, you get really judgy of yourself and other people. And that, and your, your quote, quote unquote love for other people is very conditional and it's very dependent on whether or not they're doing what you think they ought to do. And um, this is why, for example, when, I separated from my husband, my ex-husband, a really, really close friend of mine wouldn't let her daughter play with my daughter anymore because they had a rule. 
And that's, and so they were willing to throw out love and connection in order to adhere to a specific rule of, uh, that would supposedly pr- protect them from evil, us evil, you know, our evil family or whatever. I don't know, but there, there's no love in that. So I just think that the more that we see our, the more that we are freed up to enjoy our connection with God and to be that little girl in the forest exploring, knowing that our daddy is with us, the more we will love other people. Okay, let me just give you one more example that just came to mind. Because I remember when I was back in my super conservative days, that, remember that movie that came out about that girl who got bit by a shark and her arm got chopped off by the shark? And they made a yes. movie about it. I can't remember what the movie was called. but Surfer or something surfer? Yeah, yeah, it was something like that. Well, anyway, the, you know, all the, obviously it's a surfer movie, so the women are wearing bikinis, right? And this girl was wearing a bikini. So I wouldn't let my kids go to see that movie because I didn't want my boys to see girls in bikinis. Okay. So you guys are just, you're getting a little glimpse of who, you know, where I lived and who I was back then. But anyway, um, I judged, I I always thought of, you know, if Christians are wearing bikini, what kind of a Christian is that? They're just flaunting their bodies in front of everyone on the beach. And it was so, it made me feel icky about them. And it came from this place of tight, just judgmental, yucky, icky darkness. Now, the way I'm at now, it's like, I have absolutely no, I'm not going to go out in a bikini because I'm 53 years old. But if I see other people in bikinis, I have no, there is absolutely zero judgment. They're zero, and I don't know where they're at in their relationship with God, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Jesus loves them, and I love them. And whether or not what they're wearing is irrelevant, it's who they are as a human being that's relevant. This this concept changes the way we not only evaluate ourselves, but everybody and everything. Notice how much of Christianity... And, and taught Christianity specifically talks about ways to manage our sin. Yes. It's so oppressive. So much of it is designed to help people behave better and to help them stop behaving badly. Yeah. When in reality, the tree of life helps people become who they're created to be. And people who become who they're created to be don't behave in harmful ways. Now, they might pick wheat on the Sabbath. They might hang out with with prostitutes and wine bibbers, as Jesus was accused of. They might, whatever a wine bibber is, you know, it makes you think of someone wearing a bib and drinking so much they need to wear a bib when they spill on themselves, right? uh, Or they might even heal people on the Sabbath. But the reality is, everybody that was judging Jesus himself was looking through the lens called the knowledge of good and evil, saying, the Sabbath is a rule, it's being violated, he's a bad person. Mm-hmm. talking about the son of God himself. Yeah. Now tell me people aren't still doing that. The framework behind that is evaluating people or no more, more importantly, the framework behind that is the belief that Christianity is about helping bad people become good instead of helping dead people come to life. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. This really is the key. Let's see. I, I wrote down the name that, of what we're going to call this. Oh, wh- one of your, your subtitle was why religion kills people. That's yes. it right there. 
it literally takes people to the tree that killed the human race that Jesus came to take us away from. Yeah. So much religion is built on the foundation of the knowledge of good and the knowledge of evil and trying to get people out of the branch of the knowledge of evil and into the branch called the knowledge of good. Both branches are lethal. Yeah. Wow. So good. Well, I think we need to wrap this up. Did you have anything else? Did you have anything else you wanted to say? I feel Um, like we came to a close. Yeah, I I do. I I think one of the things that's important about this is it really changes the way that we help people because everybody asks us to be a king. What should I do? And what we do is we point people to options and empower them to be choosers. Yes. Because free people make choices. Yes. People who can be dictated to can never be free. So as helpers, both you and I, and I know you do this, so I'm not, I'm not in any way correcting you, but as helpers now, what we do, people come to me, I'm a, I'm a licensed counselor. I'm a, you know, a think differently coach. I'm, I, I do all this stuff. People want me to give them answers. I give them descriptions and choices and I want them to choose. And sometimes it really frustrates them. Yeah. But I want them to be helpful and I want them to be free. Yes. I feel like my coaching has turned more into helping people see what, what's going through their brains, like, and why they believe the things they believe and how that's working out for them so that they can then decide, well, do I want to keep thinking those things? Are there different things I, you know, is there a, like, if I want a different result in my life, I'm going to need to change some of the ways I'm thinking and some of my belief systems. And, and I, I, I totally agree with you. I think people need to be able to, and doesn't that make you, it frees you up just to love them too, just to love them wherever they're at, wherever they, because in my group, we have women that are, they want to stay with their abuser. We have women that want to leave their abuser. We have women that don't know what they want to do and it's all okay. I tell them it's, it's- all Okay. You get to decide for yourself. This is your journey. It's not anybody's job to tell you what you should or shouldn't do because this is your journey. This is your life. You're the one. I have no skin in the game. Nobody else has any skin in the game. You're the one that's got all the skin in the game. Your knowledge of good isn't the operating paradigm. Right. Right. It's their freedom to choose. You, you said this, most of my coaching has become helping people see, and then you paused, and I wanted to say you could stop right there, and that's the key. Yeah. Help people see, then they can make choices and become powerful. Yes. Well, I just want to say, I really appreciate, one of the things I appreciate about you, Bob, and I hope if anyone who's listening has never heard of Bob, you really need to go check out his stuff. Because he has this, as you can see from this particular episode, he has, he does have a really different way of seeing things. And you have, I mean, Bob, you've, I've grown, I've been steeped in religion my entire life, like steeped in it. And you have helped, you help me think about all the things that I already know. I've got all the knowledge up here. You help me think about them in new ways that opens up. It's almost like my brain just does not want to go there because it's, you know what I mean? Because our brains are so efficient and they just kind of want us to loop on the same thoughts. And then you introduce these things and I'm like, yes, yes. You almost have to write them down so you can go over them again later. 
and try to shift the way your brain is thinking about. And that's probably why you call your, your um, business or your ministry think differently. And it really is a challenge to learn how to think differently about these things. But Jesus did that too. When Jesus was on earth, he told lots of stories. He tried to get people to think differently and it was, it transformed people's lives. Thoughts are easy to change. Paradigms, your mind will resist change. Yeah. And when we have a paradigm that's destructive, like the knowledge of good and evil, we feel resistance when something truth true comes towards us. When it, but when it's contrary to our paradigm, we can change a thought easily. But when something challenges our paradigm, we feel great resistance to it. Jesus was crucified for challenging the paradigm of his day. Now, we understand there are powers of darkness behind that and everything. But at a human level, he was trying to get people out of the tree called the knowledge of good and evil and into a whole new way of thinking. So, yeah, dead on. Thank you. Yes. So, thank you so much for giving us some of your time. And I mention uh, I'll the Academy? Quickly, I'm sorry, what? Should I mention the Academy? Yes, you should. Yes. I was just going to so go real there. quick. Beautiful. Think Differently Academy is our website, tdacad.com. I know Natalie's going to put a link up, but Think Differently Academy is our website where we deal with everything from issues of abuse to relationship and communication, but also spirituality, freedom, and, and um, uh, restoration of the soul. And all of those things are there. A lot of it's free. We've really just put a lot of material out there that's free. There is a subscription component to that, but you can read all that there. But the whole idea is, a, get off of social media onto our own landing platform, but provide resources to help people, just like Natalie was saying. Change the way that you think and everything else changes. So Think Differently Academy is where all that stuff lives. Yes. Go check it out. He's got lots of good stuff. He and his wife, Polly. And he's also done, a, uh, I, think, I think this might be your third time. I have to go look on the podcast, but... I'll also put links to his other podcast episodes with us. And then um, Polly's, his wife, did a podcast, a podcast episode with us as well. So I'll put links to those yeah. two. And you can meet Polly because she's amazing. She's amazing. She is. All right. Thank you so much, Bob. And until next time, the rest of you, fly free. Fly free.